Well, let me just once again welcome you to uh, Fellowship Church as you have already been uh, welcomed. Uh, We're glad that you're here if this is your first time. Uh, you can know that we have prayed for you. We've thought uh, about you. We didn't know you by name, but it's, it's what we anticipate as God is continuing uh, to grow uh, our church and also as he continues to expand the opportunities we have for ministry. We're just thankful that you're here and, uh, and just pray that God, uh, that you've been welcomed by our, our people and also we're trusting that God is going to, to use this time uh, to encourage you and, and to build uh, you up. Uh, we're, into the, we're at the time in our service where we move to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, and we are in the uh, series in the book of Acts, a New Testament book that we've been working through, and uh, we're going to continue uh, in that today. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, that last week uh, we had uh, Dr. Yuan and Angela and the, and the, uh, the conference on biblical sexuality. Uh, that, that worship service, if you missed it, I uh, just want to encourage you to, to catch that, watch it, uh, listen to it uh, online. It's, it's available on our website. Uh, it was a tremendous testimony, something you're definitely going to want to listen to. And then also, if you were not able to attend the, the conference, the rest of the conference is available um, on our podcast. And, uh, and so you can uh, subscribe to that, and, and I encourage you to listen to that as well. As we, we are doing these things for the purpose of equipping the body, equipping all of you, and equipping uh, the region. And uh, that was the opportunity we had in the afternoon. So we're, we're really glad for the opportunities God is giving us. Today, as we look at uh, the text that we're going to be in, in uh, in Acts chapter 15, we're going to see that God has planned uh, for uh, Gentiles to be a people for his name, the name of God. That God has planned for that, for, for the Gentile people to be a people for his name. And I want you to just think about that right at the start, because we're going to dig more into it. But I just want you to take it in just kind of generally that you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you are, if you're a follower of Christ, if you say, I've given my life to Christ, he is my Lord and he is my savior, then the scripture refers to you as belonging to a people for his name. This is one of the things I love about scripture is it, is it really demolishes our, our arguments or, or our approach of individualism because it, it's, not, it's not just that I have been called by his name, but a people for his name. We, we're, it's more than just one of us, it's all of us together. And notice it's not your name, it's his name. It's not someone else's name, it's his name. It's not even your family name, but a people for his name, the name of God. Think about what the first thing that typically happens when a baby is is born. They're they're given a a name, and usually the time of of pregnancy is is nine months of of changing all the ideas related to names, right? It's going to be this for the first month, and it moves to something else, and and eventually you settle in on, on what the name is going to be, a name that's been chosen by the parents. This is how this child will be known. 
And that first name refers to them. That's, that's who they are. The, the, the surname, the last name refers to, to a larger group. It's their family, the family of origin of which they're a part. And when you bear the name of someone, you represent that name where, wherever you are. Whoever you are, whoever you become. And in fact, many of us probably heard that, right, from our, from our parents and, and grandparents, you know, that you represent uh, all of us. With, you carry that name. Well, growing up, I had a name that, uh, that and, I, and I still do, shouldn't say it in the past tense, but I have a name. But growing up, when I think back, I had a name that always needed clarification and correction. It's Mark. It's pretty simple, M-A-R-C, but it's not with a K. It's with a C. And so this is one of my favorite examples of messing up Mark spelled with a C. So, so someone, this isn't me, this wasn't me, but someone who had my name spelling ordered coffee and just, if you have, if this is who you are, sometimes I say it and sometimes I just don't. It's just not worth it. Yeah, go ahead and just mark. And uh, so, but this person actually said mark with a C and the barista put the C in front of the name. Now that's a new one. That is a new one. My last name, Ramirez, and my father would always say, smile when you say that name. It's just something that was the way that he always referred to it. But I can't even tell you the million different ways that name has been mutilated over the years, especially coming to northeastern Pennsylvania from Brooklyn, New York, where there weren't a whole lot of Ramirez's. In fact, I, I got to tell you this real quick story of when we lived in Nanny Coke and my brother Michael was playing uh, Little League uh, and, and they would announce the names, every single person on the team that was batting ahead of him or behind him had ski at the end. <laughs> and when they announced his name, they put a ski at the end. And, and I just remember thinking, okay, my dad was like, I guess that's, we're, we're Nanny Coke, we're Polish now. Um, so... It's, it's interesting how your name can be used and misused uh, it, depending on the spelling, depending on uh, where you grow up, all of these things. But each of us have a name and our names have meaning. Our first names, our middle names, and especially our, our last name, our, our surname that again represents the family we belong to. But our text today it tells us of the greatest name we could ever bear. We are a people who bear the name of God. And because you must come through Jesus Christ, the person uh, of Jesus Christ, in order to come to God, we bear the name of our Lord Jesus. And so may we bear that name, may we bear that name with reverence and with awe, all of us. Let's pray together and ask God to lead us as we're going to look into this text today. Lord God, thank you for the privilege that you've given each of us to bear your name, that we are a people who bear your name and who have been called by your name. Lord God, help us as we look into your word today to be open to receive it, to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and, and, and ultimately, Lord, mostly just a heart that is soft 
and uh, available and open to how the Spirit of God wants to work in our life. Use this time now, Lord. We thank you for the scriptures and the authority that it has for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. That's where we are. It's where we left off two weeks ago. And we left off with the council in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas and, another, and a group of, of other leaders have, have left Antioch. They went to Jerusalem and they're there to get an answer from the leaders on this issue of circumcision and Jewish law keeping. What is, what, what is the church? This is a big deal for the church. A big deal. What are they going to do? And, and we looked uh, two weeks ago, Peter spoke first, and we saw that, and he made it clear that this is a gospel of grace, and, and this gospel of grace is a gospel that we're going to continue to hold to, and that's all we looked at, and the next uh, speakers are Paul and Barnabas, and so we're going to start by looking at what Paul and Barnabas say. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Luke tells us that that Paul and Barnabas now speak about all that God has done in the Gentile regions of their travels, right? When they were in Pisidian Antioch, in Lystra, in Derbe. And all that God did there in those Gentile regions and their point, their whole point is that God is blessing gospel ministry to the Gentiles. Now the Jewish audience, remember the audience, don't lose sight of the context here. This is a mainly Jewish audience. It's, it's believe, the, the church, the believing church in Jerusalem. So this Jewish audience, they expect Paul and Barnabas to be favorable towards Gentiles because it was them who, who was doing most of the gospel uh, spreading to the Gentiles. That, so they, they kind of would expect Paul and Barnabas to say what they did. And I think that's also because uh, notice that Luke does not provide much at all of what Paul even says here. And I think that's the reason why is because he's, Luke is really focusing more on what Peter said and also on what James is about to say. And James is next. Look at verse 13. We see that James responds after they finish speaking, which is Paul and Barnabas. And again, not much said there. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Now, before we go on and look at what he said, I want to help identify who James is. So we're, we're all on the same page. Who is this James? Well, this is uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. So he grew up with Jesus, with Mary and Joseph. He knew him very, very well. He's also the author of the book of James. He's known as James the Just. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. This is, this is big time in terms of churches and, and where we are in the first century. So he's, he's a very important figure in the early church. And, and I want you to take note that he has great influence among Jewish believers, especially with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Well, you can see the connection there because he's, he's the half-brother of Jesus 
and he's in Jerusalem, and he is going to be a, a big voice in how the church uh, responds. Church history also tells us that James uh, was a man of great prayer. It's been, it's been said that his knees were as calloused as the knees of a camel from how much time he spent on his knees in prayer. And what's so interesting, if you really look at the Gospels and then you understand what happened, we don't have a story that really tells us about his conversion, but we do have Gospel accounts which talk about the fact that Jesus and his family were not believers. In fact, they were, they were kind of resisting what he, was, what he was doing. Most likely James among them, but something happened where he came to faith. And when he came to faith, he became a strong witness and God used him in the church. So there are two main affirmations to James' response that I want to bring out. The first one is this, he affirms Peter's testimony. Look at verse 14, Simeon, and that's a reference to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. There it is, there's that phrase. James refers to Peter here as Simeon, which again is just a variation of Peter's given name, Simon. And James affirms something. He affirms that the gospel was brought to the Gentiles through Simon, through Peter. Just as Peter, had, just as Peter said earlier that we read in the chapter. And, and so James is affirming what Peter said. And he says that it was God's intent to take the Gentile people as his own. Think about that. To this Jewish audience, this is, this is bold and courageous speaking, that he would be telling this very Jewish audience that it was God's intent from the very beginning to take the Gentiles and to make them a people as his own, a people for his name. That language would catch the ears of of a Hebrew who had grown up in the law, had believed in Jesus, and now they're hearing, what? A people for his name. We are the people for his name. So this has been God's plan from the very beginning. Then James affirms the Gentile mission, and he does that through Old Testament prophecy. He affirms the Gentile mission through the Old Testament. How brilliant. Of James do that. We'll read the text and then I'll explain it. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, James says. So he says, I'm, I'm affirming what Peter said, and I'm also going to tell you that this is what the prophets said as well. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. There it is, again, says the Lord who makes these things from known from of old. So James, very smart guy, trying to make a case for something. His primary audience here that he's speaking to are Jewish believers and he's using Hebrew Old Testament prophecy to make his point. That's smart. He knows that they would, they would see that as authoritative. And what does he do? He refers to Amos 9, uh, verses 11 and 12, and he, and he refers to Isaiah 43, 7 in, in what he says here. He doesn't quote these exactly. That's not his point. 
His point isn't to quote it exactly. His point is to refer to it, to reference it. And what he says is that these Old Testament texts are referring to a future day when the restoration of Israel, uh, the restoration of Israel, the nation, will coincide with the inclusion of Gentiles. Gentile nations even being received into the people of God. This, is, this would be, again, big news. Now, and, I'm, and again, I'm not saying that it would be necessarily new for all these Jewish believers that are listening, but for some, it may not have been something that was realized or certainly not emphasized. So what is God promising here? In, let, let me first just explain that. What's actually being said here in the text that that James is referring to. Well, God is promising to rebuild the tent of David. That would refer to, again, uh, David's line as, as king re, and, and also incorporate with that the nation of Israel. Rebuild its ruins, restore it. That rebuild and restoration will include Gentiles. So Israel always believed that there would be a, a restoration and a rebuild and the ruins would, 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 would be you know, restored. But what, what James is saying is that is going to include Gentiles and that has been God's plan all along. And this is what he's explaining. So what he's telling them is this isn't only a New Testament promise. It has been promised in the Old Testament as well. And again, through this Old Testament reference, James makes reference to the Gentiles bearing the name of God, verse 17. So again, a very big deal. Israel was the chosen nation, the chosen people, God's people, but it has been God's plan from the very beginning to make Gentiles a people who also bear his name. What a promise that is to the Gentiles, what a privilege that is, and that includes all of us. We would be included in that as well. So he makes that clear, and then we move to the judgment of James. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James here pronounces judgment. So he you know, he didn't get the memo about we don't judge, <laughs> right? He's like, no, I, I actually do. I'm pronouncing judgment. The, the text there says my judgment, my crino, which, which means to pronounce an opinion concerning right and wrong. He, I mean, there's just no way around that. He's rendering a decision here. He's considered the evidence and he's pronouncing judgment. That's what he's doing. So you could say, you know, he's clearly not maybe EFCA or Baptist because the decision doesn't seem to be as congregational as we would like it to be and as our Presbyterian friends would like to point out to us that that would be the case. But what is the judgment? What is the judgment here? The judgment is that Gentile believers do not need to be troubled with the burden of circumcision or Jewish law keeping. That's very important for you to understand from this text, that you, that you got that. The, what, is, what was the judgment rendered by James in Acts 15? 
They do not need to be troubled with the burden of circumcision or Jewish law keeping in salvation. That does not need to be a part of it. So the gospel of grace will remain the gospel of grace as determined by the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. The judgment has been made, but there's more that James has to say. Now, before we look at what else he has to say, I just want to point out, he just renders that decision and moves on. I mean, they're there, this whole gathering is about, let's have this discussion, let's talk about and make sure we understand what's going to happen related to Gentiles coming to faith and whether circumcision will be required and Jewish law keeping. They have a discussion, Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas speak, James comes up, speaks, quotes from the Old Testament, then he says... Here's the verdict. Here's the decision. There actually is no discussion after that. He moves right on to something else. They're not, gonna, they're, they're not going to have a, a, a congregational discussion about adding to the gospel, essentially. It's just he's not going to be a part of it. But what he does do here is he's going to list four requirements that Gentile Christians should live in submission to. Now, this could be really difficult to understand or certainly potentially, certainly would have some potential to be uh, taken out of context or, or, or misapplied. So I'm going to try to explain it in a way where that does not happen. So let me first explain what these requirements are not, and then we're going to look at them. What are they not? Sometimes it's good to know what they're not before we know what they are. Well, they're not new laws that must be obeyed in order to be saved. So James isn't saying, hey, I have, I have four new laws that you need to obey to be saved. It's not what he's doing. And he's also not taking selective parts of the Jewish law and saying, yeah, I've just selected a few of my favorites. These are the ones that, these are the laws I like and I want you to make sure you're following. He's not doing that either. He's not selecting, you know, very selectively taking some Jewish law, putting it together and saying these are the ones that you need to obey to be saved. He's not doing either of those things. So let's look at the text and then we'll go on from there. Therefore my judgment is, verse 19, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. And now you can see why this could be difficult to what is going on here. So let me list the requirements and then I'll go back and explain the reasons for these, uh, these requirements. These, these are requirements first. First, you need to understand who the audience is. I've been talking to you about the fact that in the beginning of this council, for the most part, Peter, uh, Paul, Barnabas, James, they've really been speaking to Jewish believers, even though it's mixed. I'm not saying it's not mixed. But now, this, now there's a shift. Now these requirements are not for Jewish believers. These, he is now speaking to the Gentile believers that are there. This is, it's a shift in, in, in who is he directing these words to. And all of these are abstentions, as you'll see. First one is this, abstain from the pollution or contamination of your old idolatrous ways. So this is the way that I'm, uh, I'm summarizing it. 
This is what it means to abstain from things polluted by idols. That's the, that's the terminology here in the, in the ESV. These idolatrous ways are contaminants that must be avoided. So remember, remember what we learned when we were in Acts 14 and they were going through the, the Gentile cities. These Gentile places had pagan ways, right? Pagan rituals, pagan rituals of worship. And, and so what James is saying is you need to abstain from those things because you can't bring them into your new faith in Christ. So abstain from the pollution contamination of your old idolatrous ways. Second, abstain from pagan idolatrous sexual immorality. This is not just a general call to sexual immorality. That would be cl- clearly understood by both Jewish law for the Jews, but even as a Christian, a, person, a Gentile coming to faith in Christ, but what, what James is really referring to here is the pagan Gentile worship that included sexual immorality as part of their worship and practice. These Gentile believers are to abstain from any association with pagan temple sexual deviancy and immorality. And, 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 and I got to get a, a little specific here because there, there were a lot of things that this would have referred to in, in the first century with pagan rituals. So he's referring here to what would be considered illicit sexual intercourse, which would be part of worship, pagan worship. It would include fornication. It would include homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, familial sexual deviancy, and sexual deviancy with children. This is all terrible horrible stuff to even mention. But these practices were, were part, I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like it's so common, but in, in some of the pagan worship rituals, these, these acts were part of worship. And these Gentile, these Gentile believers, they've been saved out of these things. So they, they should no longer be a part of their lives. And that's what the scripture is making clear here. Third, abstain from practices associated with strangled creatures, whether animal or human. That's how I'm writing that, just to help broaden what is being referred to here. This would be a reference to animals strangled as part of pagan ritual worship for the purpose of of securing uh, the blood in a certain way to be used in, again, later part of ritual worship. But in some cases, it could also involve human rituals as well. They were to abstain from these things. And then the final, uh, the final abstention is abstain from pagan rituals of blood. And again, I have that one as whether animal or human because many of the pagan worship rituals involved the use of blood. 
whether it involved drinking, using it in, in potions, painting it on their skin, putting it uh, on, on some sort of pan over a fire, mixing it with herbs and even, and even smelling it or inhaling it. And all these, all these pagan rituals where, where blood would be involved, they were to avoid. The, 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 the series that uh, was out recently uh, called Vikings attempted to, to show some of this uh, authentic pagan uh, rituals even, even through that, uh, that television series, especially using blood. But the same was true of many ancient peoples. And these pagan rituals of blood are not to be part. They're not to be part of the life of a follower of Christ. Even if someone had come out of that. And what's interesting about that is that followers of Christ are to participate in the Lord's Supper, right? And that involves the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup, symbols of the Lord's battered body and blood. And, and you can see how a Gentile believer would seem maybe similar to them. Well, you drink blood as part of your worship of Jesus and, and, and that's what we did. But there's nothing pagan or unholy about communion and the Lord's table and what it is that we celebrate. Even today, we celebrate it as a memorial, as a remembrance, right? We, we know what we're drinking. We're not saying it's turning into blood. We're not doing that. What we're saying is this is a remembrance, it's a memorial of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we hold the bread as a, as a tangible reminder of the, of the fact that he sacrificed his body. We hold the cup as a tangible reminder that he shed his blood and that, that both of these acts in the person of Christ are the means of atonement for us. And they're part of our worship in that way but they're not unholy in any way, which is why it's an ordinance of the church. So let me, let me do now some additional explanation why these particular requirements. All of these requirements are designed to keep Gentile believers from being lured back into pagan idolatrous ways. These requirements are, are designed to instruct Gentile believers who, who have grown up in a culture, everything about the way they grew up was nothing like what they were called to now as Christians. And, and James is saying, you need to keep these requirements as a way of, being, of, of making sure you're not lured back into pagan idolatrous ways. So this is more than just about eating the right foods. In fact, the ESV translators, they don't even mention food or meat. Neither, neither does the New American Standard. If you, if you have an NIV, you're going to see a difference there in, in, in the translation. Um, and again, these requirements are directed to the Gentile believers, not the Jewish believers, because they're about keeping the Gentile believers from falling back into pagan idolatrous worship, which is what they've been saved from. So this is, this is pastoral. 
James is, James is considered to be pastoral in, in his approach. And he's being pastoral in, in saying, you're now part of the body. You're with us, but let me help you stay with us by giving you some instruction, some exhortation that you need as Gentile believers. Now, there's also a benefit to the Jewish believers and the unbelievers if the Gentile believers that he's speaking to, if they follow these requirements. So remember, let me, let me repeat it just so we're on the same track. James is talking to Gentile believers, right? But I'm telling you, there's a benefit to the Jewish believers and the Jewish unbelievers if these new Gentile believers follow these requirements. What are those benefits? Well, notice verse 21. Why does James even mention that? He mentions Moses and the Sabbath. He's making it clear here that Gentile believers and Jewish ones will have to interact with Jewish believers and unbelievers as, and they will need to do so in the right way. Right? They're, He's saying from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city, those who proclaim, he's read every Sabbath in, in the synagogues. You're going to find Jewish worshipers wherever you go. So as you are going to be a witness, be aware of that. And by keeping these requirements, it's going to help you to do that. And this is where we get to see the benefit. So the benefit of these requirements to Jewish believers is this. Gentile believers will not needlessly cause offense to Jewish believers. They're not going to needlessly cause offense because these pagan ways would be very offensive to Jews who've grown up keeping themselves from these very things. So by keeping these requirements, these Gentile believers will not needlessly offend their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. It will remove opportunity for dissension and division in the body of Christ among who? Jews and Gentiles. If the Gentiles follow these requirements. This is an encouragement, again, a pastoral encouragement of healthy Christian fellowship. Among who? Among two ethnic groups. Different ethnic groups. Jews and Gentiles. Actually, it would cross over multiple ethnic groups. And James is saying, but we're one body of Christ. So we need to be aware. Don't, don't, don't cause offense to, to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ if you don't need to. If you don't have to, don't, don't seek to do that. We would be wise to follow the same counsel. Amen? We would be wise to follow the same counsel. And that applies to us very differently. This is one of those Holy Spirit applied principles because it changes based on who we are, where we are, who we're around. It's not, it's not the same for all of us, how we apply that. But what is the benefit of these requirements to Jewish unbelievers? Well, Gentile believers will not needlessly create obstacles to gospel witness for Jewish unbelievers. Jewish people who do not believe in Jesus are going to keep the Jewish law. They're going to be found in the synagogues. So by keeping these requirements, what are the Gentile believers doing? Well, they're not. They're removing obstacles to, that would limit their gospel witness. They don't, want to, they don't want to limit their gospel witness to these, unbelievers, these Jewish unbelievers. 
So by, by, by keeping these requirements, it would keep them from, from having that happen. And they would be able to still be strong gospel witnesses. Again, pastoral encouragement of healthy gospel witness. And again, we would be wise to follow the same counsel when it comes to our witness to unbelievers. We do not need, we do not have a a need to needlessly create obstacles to our witness. There's enough already, right? I mean, there are. There, there, There are enough already built in to the system, if you will. We don't need to create more. And so James and the, and the leaders of, of the Jerusalem church are giving this instruction to these Gentile believers. It'd be wise to follow these requirements and not cause issues with your brothers and sisters or issues with your gospel witness to Jewish unbelievers. So we're going we're gonna to pick up in the, in the rest of the text uh, next week, but what can we learn and apply from this text, uh, text today? Two, two requirements. I'll stay on that theme of requirements. First one is this. We must all, as, as believers, we must all break away from our formal, former sinful ways of living, which seek to pollute and contaminate our Christian lives. All of us need to do this. Break away from our former sinful ways of living. James and the other apostles recognized that these new Gentile believers needed to be encouraged to separate themselves from their former way of living. They had become new in Christ. And to be new in Christ means what? The old must go. You cannot You cannot and you should not be seeking to keep that which is part of the old you. Remember what we learned in that, in the series we did on sin. We are called to mortify indwelling sin. These Gentile believers, they had to let go of pagan worship rituals that had no place in their worship of a holy God. They had to enter into new and holy worship of the one true God. And the worship of the one true God looks nothing like the worship of pagan gods. And to not do that is to enter into religious syncretism. Religious syncretism is, the, is essentially just the blending of two different religious belief systems into one. And, and at this point today, I would say it's the, it's the blending of multiple. It doesn't even need to be two. It could be two, three, four. That's where we are today in our, in our age of pluralism. Pluralism is, is many ways you know, to God, whatever, whatever works for you. So take a piece here, take a piece here, take a piece there. Put it together and that's the, that'll work for you. That's fine. But what you're actually seeing here in this text, that's not fine. We can't just add Jesus to whatever else we used to believe. If you're a follower of Christ... And you've been called by God to follow him. You can't just add Jesus 
to your life as is and say, yeah, he kind of mixes in well. That's, it's going to work good. No, it's not what it's like. The old is gone. The new has come. It's a new life in Christ. You can't just add Jesus to whatever you used to believe. This is what cross-cultural missionaries have to be aware of this when they go into another culture because it's a tendency. It's one of the things they teach you in uh, missionary training is is to to pick up on the red flags of syncretism because what will happen is you'll have a cultural way and they'll say, oh, this Jesus is, that sounds really good and they'll try to put them together. And you got to keep that from happening so that they understand the gospel is different. Think of the word sink. Not sink, kitchen sink. Sink, computer sink. Right? You, gotta, you know, that didn't sink well. Or that one doesn't sink with that, right? Well, that, that's, that's what syncretism is. It's, it's trying to sink Jesus to something that is not compatible with scripture. Doesn't sink. Can't do that. Doesn't work. So when you, in your own life, when you think of the old you, what needs to go? What needs to go? What are you, what are you holding on to? What, what part of your old life is the spirit of God right now? The spirit of God, because I don't know what it is, but the spirit of God is is bringing it to your mind and saying it needs to go. What are you trying to squeeze in to your Christian life? Make it fit. You know, it's like those USB cords and they don't go in and you're just like, I'll jam that thing in there, right? Now it'll surely won't work. You can't do that. It won't fit. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you and be willing to break from it. The former ways, the former thinking, the former living, these things, what they seek to do is contaminate and pollute your life, your Christian life. Second, as a people who now bear the name of Almighty God, praise God, we must embrace holiness and resist the pollution of all that is unholy. We bear the name of God, and that's a holy name as people who have been saved by the grace of God, as a people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we must remember that we are now a people for his name. You are are part of the people for his name, the name of God, the name of Jesus. Think about it, is that how you're known? That's a person who's known by the name of Jesus. Whose name do you seek to elevate more? Whose name do you seek to elevate most? Yours, others, or God? The name of Christ. Leviticus 20, 26 says, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So when you read Leviticus 20 and you connect that to Acts 15, what you should say is, okay, yeah, this is what he promised to Israel, right? But then in Acts 15, what they were saying is, yes, but this now applies to all Gentile people, all of us through Christ, we should be his, bear his name.
To be a people for his name is to understand that we've been called by a holy God and he has separated us from all other people and we are his. We are to be holy for he is holy. So let me give you a question to ask yourself often. Is it holy? Is what I'm saying holy? Is what I'm doing holy? Is what I'm thinking? Man, that's tough. Is what I'm thinking holy? Is what I'm thinking about other people holy? Is what I'm thinking about God holy? It's not what would Jesus do because you're not Jesus. It really is the wrong question. Jesus did not ask, God's not asking you to die on a cross for anyone's sin. He's not asking you to do any of the things, many of the things that Jesus did. But he is calling us to be holy because he's holy. And he has called us to himself and he has given us his name and we bear his name. So you're not your own. You have a new name. You have a new family. You bear the name of your God. You are a part you are now part of the people for his name. You are part of the people for the name of God. Amen. Amen. Christ's name. May we live that way. May the Holy Spirit help us to live that way. And may we really take in what it means that we are a people for his name. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the privilege to be called your people, to be given the name that is above every other name. Lord, may each person here, I pray, before we even move on, as you continue to bring things to their mind of what needs to go, help them to not just make it a prayer sitting in the seat in the worship center, but may it be a reality when they leave. Follow through, Lord, discipline to say, yes, this, Lord God, this is not pleasing to you. I'm a person who's been called by your name. I'm thinking unholy things. I'm saying things that if people heard things coming out of my mouth, they would say that is unholy. Forgive us, Lord, help us to submit to your spirit in these things and to embrace the privilege of being a people for the name of God. Help us to respond as you've called us to, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen.